When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet. We sit here stranded, though we're doing all our best to deny it. And Louise holds a handful of rain, tempting you to defy it. Lights flicker from the opposite loft. In this room, the heat pipes just cough. The country music station plays soft, but there's really nothing, really nothing to turn off. Just Louise and her lover, so entwined, and these visions of Johanna that conquer my mind. We're here to talk about Visions of Johanna, a song that poet laureate Andrew Motion said was simply the best song lyric ever written. So there's that. Uh, This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about this uh, really remarkable song, I mean, I think I say that every week, every song is remarkable, but this one is super duper remarkable, is someone who has written more words about this song uh, than I have written to my parents, uh, Cameron Artigue. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. And it's great to have you here. Uh, you you wrote me, uh, and we're very specific about that. You wanted to talk about this one, and you sent me some of the writing that you've done about this. And it was really amazing, the, the depth and breadth of analysis that you've done for the song, which is, you know, this is one of these songs that really invites that that kind of just amazing level of analysis because there's just so much going on here. But before we get to that, I do need to ask you, like, how did you come to being a fan of Bob Dylan? Oh, sure. I'm a late baby boomer. And so in college, uh, a friend of mine put on the first side of bringing it all back home. And I remember being grabbed by Bob Dylan's 115th Dream. And because the the lyrics are sort of up in the mix. And I thought, oh, this is what they're talking about. This is. uh, And and so I was I was captivated by it and I worked my way back through the catalog and forward. So, you know, at that stage in my life, uh, Bob Dylan was kind of part of the back catalog that baby boomers were required to know about. So, <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I listened to Dylan the way I listened to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones classic albums, and I was a big fan, and that all happened. If you fast forward 15, 20 years to the time of, like, Love and Theft... I, uh, you know, by that point, I have a career, I have a family, and I sort of re-engaged with Dylan in a more, as more of an avocation. I mean, I, I, Lord knows I still enjoy listening to the music, but I, I sort of started drawing upon all the literature and the kind of more academic writing to sort of, um, I don't know, drill down in a, in a more kind of serious way into what's going on. Have you ever seen him live? Yeah, about a dozen times. The first oh, wow. time, the, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the first time with Tom Petty in 1986, and um, I have I try to make it a habit for the last eight years or so. I try to see him every tour when he's in the United States because I always think, well, this could be the last, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I've seen him live a bunch of times. Do you have a particular favorite era? I mean, that's hard. I know I wouldn't be able to really answer that. But do you have a, a particular album or, or something like that? Well, you know, those mid like for a lot of people, the mid '60s electric albums are really special. Um, uh, you know what? And if that if Bob Dylan had ceased producing work at that point, he would be you know historic. What really you know the blood on the tracks thing is what really. Uh, cements him as a, a an artist of really historic importance in my mind, um, and then he continues to produce. I mean, you know, um, I liked Infidels in the '80s, you know, and I think the the Time Out of Mind, Love and Theft are tremendous. Uh, Modern Times, I'm a big fan of. The yep. Sinatra stuff is, <laughs> uh, you know. I mean, I was thinking, you know, Bob Dylan, he could he could sing 
you know, he could remake the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and I would <laughs> listen to it and think it was great because it was Bob Dylan. But, you know, I, I, I'm more intrigued by the, the, the back catalog. I'm picturing Bob in that white suit that Tony Manero wore. It's just an amazing visual. Uh, well, anyway, awesome. Very, very, very cool. Um, yeah, I mean, Visions of Johanna. I said this is a song from Blonde on Blonde, obviously. And this was uh, a song that um, is, you know, there aren't it, – it's not the only song that he's ever done this for, but it's still pretty rare in that it was a song that he re- started performing live uh, ever before he put it on an album, and he was actually performing it acoustically when he was doing uh, the tours with the band, and he was doing half the show acoustically and half the show with the, with uh, you know the electric backing, and he was doing it acoustically. Visions of Johanna, although back then he was calling it Freeze Out. Uh, the song eventually changed his name over time, and then when he got to recording Blonde on Blonde with the band, this was one of the first songs he recorded, which is talk about you know hitting the ground running. Uh, is to you know to sit there with the band and this is one of the first things that you try and 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 knock out which is ambitious as hell and there are multiple versions of this song there's an electric one with the band which is works on its on its own level uh but uh, i i mean i think most people would argue it's the version that ended up on the album is the one that that is sort of the transcendent one uh and it's you know i know you've written a, a, a lot about this song and we're i want to get to all that but it's like i always think what is like how why does this song work for me and and because it it doesn't have any literal sense uh really uh i mean it it is part of uh, Dylan's collection of sort of triad songs where he is with someone or the narr- at the very least and maybe not he the narrator is with someone but it's that's not who's on his mind and of course in he you know you've got that in Tangled Up in Blue and you've got that in Brownsville Girl here he's with this woman Louise uh and she's all right she's just near but she's not Joanna, and it's these visions of Joanna that are haunting this guy. And, you know, this is one of these songs that just from the very beginning, the very first line, you know, that ain't it just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet. What an amazing bit of scene setting he's doing with that first line. I mean, it just takes – it's just such an amazing tour of a place, of a mindset, of a time – and it's it's just hypnotic from beginning to end. Yeah, uh, the first line does set the scene. I mean, it's a question, and it's in, asked in a conversational tone, and it's basically asked to the listeners. Um, uh, it is a triad song, like the ones you mentioned, and traditionally, the the difference between Louise and Johanna has been explained as the difference between. Um, that which is physical and real and available, which is Louise, that's the woman who's here. And Johanna is this idealized, unattainable uh, sort of um, lover. Um, and and that, in one sense, is what the song on a big level is about, is the sort of delta between ideal and real. Um, and that's that's important to understanding the song, particularly in uh, the time frame in which he wrote it. Yeah, I mean, think about this. is It's remarkable when you think about how many songs on Blonde on Blonde are kind of about the night after. Uh, you know, I mean, they, well, they, they, and, and this is from a guy who had just gotten married in November yeah, let, 1965. Let me, let me say something about that, because in his Robert Shelton interview in 1966, Bob Dylan says, I only know two holy people in the world. One of them is Allen Ginsberg, and the other I'm not going to name, but let's just call her Sarah. And ah. this this person I'm not going to name is, you know, is Madonna-like. And he says this in early 1966. Now, this song, uh, Freeze Out, Visions of Johanna, is recorded uh, on November 30th, 1965, and if you look at the calendar, what Dylan did right before then and right after then, uh, it corresponds exactly with that comment to Robert Shelton. He marries Sarah Dylan on November 22nd, 1965. So this song is recorded eight days after he's married. The only substantial break he took from touring in that period was from November 22nd through 27th which was the week of Thanksgiving. So he sort of takes Thanksgiving week off. uh, And the sort of theory is he writes the song quickly and records it immediately. 
Um, and so, you, you know, you have to ask, what does a, a very recent marriage tell you about what's going on in this song? Because the song is all about um, interactions between male players and female players. There's the narrator, the singer's male, Louise's lover, Little Boy Lost, the Night Watchman, the fiddler, the peddler, um, and and all those male parts are interacting with the all-night girls, the ladies in the empty lot, the jelly-faced women, the countess, Louise, and Johanna. And the song is driven by this kind of male-female interaction. So that's one line of thinking, is that sort of Sarah Dillon... A, a recent marriage is kind of in the background as Bob Dylan is sitting there on Thanksgiving weekend writing this song. The other holy person uh, is Allen Ginsberg. The song is cut in New York on November 30th. Uh, Dylan immediately flies west to see Allen Ginsberg in San Francisco. Um, the He has dinner with Allen Ginsberg. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti on November on December second, the famous KQED um, press conference that is uh, taped is on December third, uh, at which Allen Ginsberg asks him, "Do you think you will be hanged?" That night at the Berkeley Community Theater, he debuts "Visions of Johanna." There's no recording of it, but that's when the song is debuted. So he kind of records it as a sort of um, offering or present to Allen Ginsberg. And, and and in that KQED press conference, he mentions the song. He says, we've got, we just recorded the song. It's called Freeze Out. It's really good. It'll be on the next album, which is rare for Dylan to do. He just yeah. doesn't do coming attractions. <laughs> um, and then uh, on November, I'm, I'm sorry, December 5th, is the photograph in front of the City Lights bookstore in San Francisco that um, there's actually two sets of photographs. One is Bob Dylan, Robbie Robertson, Allen Ginsberg, and Michael McClure, another beat poet. And then there's another set of photographs that's kind of the last gathering of the beats, which is all these poets and artists in front of the bookstore, but not with Bob Dylan. And those photographs were taken uh, by the same photographer on the same morning. Uh, so anyway, Dylan uh, writes the song, records the song, uh, presents it to Allen Ginsberg, performs it for Allen Ginsberg. You know, all this happens within two weeks. And um, I think that's that's important in pondering, you know, what the song's about and what it's trying to tell us. Now, do you get the sense that, again, you, this is from um, your writings on this, because my, my knowledge of the, the beat poets is very limited. I know, uh, you know some of the names, certainly, like, like you mentioned, Ferlinghetti and Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso. And I, I mean, but I have read very little of, of what they've written. And I get the sense, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that like, you know, Dylan obviously chafed at the notion of being grabbed by any particular group. You know, I mean, obviously the early folkies wanted to make him our, you know, he's one of us. And then he fought against that. And, you know, I mean, he wanted to be, he kind of wanted to dabble in it and, and play in that in that sandbox. But he didn't want to be known as just part of that group. And, of course, at Newport, he exploded all that. And, and I get the sense that, was that sort of something going on with the Beats, too, that these guys wanted to claim him as like, well, he's one of us now. And this this song certainly dabbles in that world, but Dylan... I was interested in it and certainly was influenced by what they were doing, but didn't necessarily want to be part of that gang. Do you, is that a well, fair assessment? You know, your question's really good. Here's what I think. I, I think in, in to some extent, Bob Dylan was bringing it back home <laughs> to reaffiliate himself with the Beats because Howell and On the Road, that stuff comes out in the 1950s when Bob Dylan's in high school. He makes it big as a folk singer, protest singer, uh, and we all know that story. That starts to fall apart right at the end of 1963 when he quits writing finger-pointing songs. I think what Dylan perceived is that when you hold yourself out as a protest singer, there's always somebody who wants you to 
come support something or join a, a you know a movement, and you kind of owe something to people. Right. And it's a button people can push. Yep. So when you say no, no, I I don't I'm not associated with any causes at all. Um, you you're more of a free agent. So what Bob Dylan's doing in '64 and into '65 is looking for something to latch onto that is post-protest. Now, the fascinating thing here is that Dylan and Allen Ginsberg each want what the other one has. Allen Ginsberg uh, was a famous poet in the 1950s. His most important work was Howell, Kaddish. That stuff comes out in 1955-56. Allen Ginsberg was an established literary figure, but wanted to make a name for himself in the world of protest and, and you know, anti-Vietnam and other sort of movements. Dylan was just the opposite. He had all sorts of credibility as a protest guy. Uh, but after, you know, in this 1965 period, he's looking for something to be. And the charge that's being hurled at him is you've sold out. You, of course, sure, yeah. You, you're a sellout. Now you just want to be a pop star and make a bunch <laughs> of money selling records. And what Dylan wants to say is, no, 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 I have artistic seriousness. And so it, it's kind of like, so. And, and the natural home for him is the Beat Poets. And you, there's photographs of Allen Ginsberg on the back of Bringing It All Back Home. And on the back of Highway 61 Revisited. So there is this kind of ongoing, you know, this doesn't just happen with Visions of Johanna. Right. But when, when Dylan moves on from Bob Dylan, protest singer, he gravitates towards this um, sort of beat artistic literary movement. And and this, you know, Visions of Johanna is kind of the last song that's expressly in that in that mold because uh, once he goes down to nashville and records the other songs that are on um blonde on blonde it almost takes on a little bit different direction more of a bluesy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it's less urban anyway i that's i that's yeah. it's funny that you said urban that because that, i that was something that was on my mind is that you know this song does remind me a bit um, in terms of the, the the feelings it evokes of Desolation Row, in that it's this sort of parade of freaks that are freaks I put in quotes uh, that are sort of wandering by, but but in in that song of course it's a chamber of horrors, uh, you know it's just one nightmarish image after the next, and in fact there's even a line in that song about which side are you on, which people would suggest is you know that's him talking about the folk movement, what side are you on, pick a side. Visions of Johanna seems much more dreamlike and less not i don't want to say less scary that's not what i'm trying just less threatening it's more just you know i i i sort of i can i definitely have a a, a feeling of a place here um obviously uh i think he wrote this uh, at the chelsea hotel because i think i remembered reading someone else that had was a friend of dylan's i wish i could remember who it was but it was a friend of dylan's who had also stayed at the chelsea hotel and said that when the heat would turn on in the winter at the Chelsea Hotel, it sounded like the heat pipes coughing. And he, oh. when, he heard, when he heard that lyric, he went, damn it, that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like the heat pipes coughing when the heat kicks on. But, I mean, I'm sort of imagining Dylan sitting on a fire escape, looking out at the New York City streets at 4 in the morning, and just seeing this parade of weird people all meandering around and you know the city is sort of quiet but not really that's sort of what i get and that's part of the reason i find even though desolation row is you know a brilliant song this one feels less it just feels less threatening it feels a little warmer because it just i don't know i'm just there to me there is not that implicit violent threat plus it's, it is specifically again about the uh, a relationship um i didn't want to get off this because as we move on to talk about other things, but the one line that, that well, there's many lines that jump out of me, but one particularly when you're talking about Louise, when he mentions her and he says, you know, she's all right, she's just near. And I love that idea that in the universe of this song, Louise being near is a bad thing. 
when you would think that would be a good thing. I mean, the woman, you know, the, this, Louise is near you. That's a good thing, as opposed to Joanna, who is floating around somewhere off, off in the, the ether. But in this song, it's, it's, he's kind of holding it against Louise that she's here, you know, in, in this little weird way. It's like, well, it's, yeah, Louise doesn't come off very well in this song. Uh, Louise is all right. She's just to say someone's near as being kind of a put down is striking. And then the next line is she's delicate and seems like the mirror. And, you know, delicate can go both ways. Delicate can be finely made and valuable or it can mean, fragile you know, and... yeah, fragile and kind of not worth the trouble, you know. <laughs> and and so, yeah, Louise is um, these are the problems of being uh, of the real world. The I like that. I think it's in the first verse where he says the heat pipes just cough. The country music station plays soft and uh, the lights flicker from the opposite loft. And what I had never noticed is that these are expressions of three senses of sight and sound and touch. And they're all manifested in weak and failing ways. You know, the heat pipes are not doing what they're supposed to do. The lights are flickering. The country music station is playing softly. And so all of this, to me, sort of um, resonates with this kind of imperfect, uh, faltering, you know, nature of the reality we live in. I don't mean to sound so heavy, but um, but I think that's that goes to this larger theme of you know there's there's the ideal world and then there's this world uh, where things are not perfect, um, and and I you know. When you have the the heat pipes and the the flickering lights, um, it evokes to me, Dylan, or somebody kind of sitting in a room by themselves, you know, uh, like getting back to the first line you mentioned, the night is playing tricks when you're trying to be so quiet. It's an internal song. I can imagine that uh, Dylan probably had to fight pretty hard to get into a quiet peace of mind to be able to write. You know, with all the all the people that wanted to be around him, that wanted to be part of his world, uh, I would, uh, you know, I would guess it was probably pretty hard to just shut all that out and be able to sit there and 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 concentrate and focus on on what he was doing. And the the, the, the lines that go on in the search is just remarkable. And the second verse it says, "In the empty lot where the ladies play, blind men's bluff with the keychain, and the all night girls they whisper whisper of escapades out on the D train." We can hear the night watchman click his flashlight, ask himself if it's him or them that's really insane. Louise, she's all right. She's just near. She's delicate. It seems like the mirror. But she just makes it all too concise and too clear that Joanna's not here. The ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face where these visions of Johanna have now taken my place. That line about the ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face. I've seen that line frequently pulled from this song as one of those lines of just like, yeah, this is why this guy is revered as he is. Cause that line is just, it doesn't have any, you know, I'm, I'm hard pressed to say what it means exactly, but it feels so powerful. Well, it is a beautiful line. It is maybe one of his greatest lines. Michael Gray said that every poet who ever lived wished that he had written that line. <laughs> um, but let me, let me share something. There's Ginsburg in this line because um, the ghost of electricity uh, evokes a line in a Ginsburg poem that was published in 1963 called Over Kansas. Uh, And Ginsburg's poem talks about the spectral skeleton of electricity. That's a line for the, the spectral skeleton of electricity. Which, and another way of saying that is ghost of electricity. So, and then you add the word howls, which is Ah, Allen Ginsberg's most famous work. So what I think Dylan's done here is he's managed to um, both pay an homage to someone and be really original at the same time, uh, which is a very tricky thing to do. 
Um, I, I had an argument a while back about Quentin Tarantino about, you know, is he derivative or is he original? And I'm like, no, no, he's both. That's what makes him so great. You know, it's uh, but anyway, I, I'm getting off the topic. But yeah, Ghost of Electricity howls in the bones of her face. There's a lot of Ellen Ginsberg in that line. And, you-, you know, <laughs> go ahead. What do you think about the idea that, you know, I mean, do you think that when he's referencing these things from other sources, is it, does it add to something to the song or is it just, again, as some people that want to be less charitable, is it just sort of like, okay, wow, you know, so we read some Alan Ginsberg and he put it in a song. What's the big deal about that? I've seen people make that conclusion you know it's like well so what you know and that i mean because there's a line here um there's a, a line later on in the song where he talks about uh mona lisa must have the highway blues you can tell by the way she mm-hmm. smiles there's a line in uh, t.s Eliot's the love song of j alfred proofrock who of course t.s Eliot was mentioned in desolation row where uh, there's a line where it says in the room where the women come and go talking of michelangelo and so it's like, okay, well, Dylan's clearly read a lot of T.S. Eliot, and he's internalized it, and he's putting it in the song. Does that add something in your mind to this? That- yes. Yes, I think it does. I think that's what makes it art. I think that's what makes, you know, uh, our, our civilization a cumulative good thing. I, you know, recently there's been all this debate about, you know, is it plagiarism? And sort of with the more recent works and, and the, the rise of internet, you know, being able to Google every line in every song, um, that's a whole nother debate. And I think it's one thing to take somebody's song and pass it off as your own, but to allude to a prior work, I mean, you know, uh, Aldous Huxley uh, uh, wrote a book called Brave New World. Well, that's from The Tempest. You know, that's Shakespeare. Does that make it, uh, you know, a, a bad title or, or somehow, you know, a, a, a something to be scorned? No, not at all. I, I think that, um, uh, you know. Uh, I think I've done a lot of thinking about that, about what are the sources and inspirations of these lines. And I think um, Dylan's one of the best uh, at being able to sort of mine our rich literary uh, and intellectual heritage to to put together these songs. The song does have a a, uh, curiously, I think, like a cumulative power as it as it builds, even though it does maintain a kind of like almost sort of stoner vibe. I, I hate, I really hate the um, very reductive idea of like, oh, well, all this stuff is about, you know, Dylan being on drugs or anytime. Yes. I, I know people who anytime anyone creates any art that is not immediately understandable on a, on a, you know, most rud- on the most rudimentary level, it's like, oh, it's because he was on drugs. Well, uh, come on. You know, I mean, this thing has that vibe, but yet, like I said, there's a definite, feeling of like it's winding up and going somewhere i mean it, it, he continues on he says uh, now little little boy lost he takes himself so seriously he brags of his misery he likes to live dangerously i can't help think that's bob talking about himself and when bringing your name up he speaks of a farewell kiss to me he sure got a lot of gall to be so useless and all muttering small talk at the wall while i'm in the hall how can i explain oh it's so hard to get on and these visions of johanna that kept me up past the dawn i love the um the shallow rhymes in that the yes got a lot of gall useless and all small talk at the wall while i'm in the hall like it's you're just being hit with this one rhyme after the next it's really remarkable no muttering small talk at the wall while i'm in the hall those are very small words they're words that any like five-year-old or three-year-old knows all those short a rhymes but there's something remarkable going on there uh, when you mutter small talk at the wall, muttering means you speak lowly and indistinctly. Small talk means that what you're saying is not substantial. It's not important. It's just small talk. And when you're doing it at the wall, there's no one even listening to you. So to mutter small talk at the wall is like this triple failure of communication (laughs) that there's no one listening you're not saying anything important to begin with and you're muttering it and he does and you don't even realize you know that there's this layer of of complexity going on with these this line that seems almost like a throwaway line um anyway um yeah i um i don't know where else to go with this right now um 
Well, I, I do. Where would you like me to go? Well, I, I, what do you? I mean, why do you? Why is this song so entrancing for you? Let's talk about that. Like, what? What you could have written uh, this much about a lot of other songs. I mean, uh, so but what? You know, you talked about 115th Dream, although that's, uh, you know, maybe that's a song that, that defies that kind of deep analysis because it is such a kind of a lark. But I mean, what is it about this song that? I mean, I, I've seen. I, re- I did a you know a lot of reading about this in anticipation of this episode, and a lot of the people that love it love it for the reason that it it never quite hangs together in terms of making sense. It always seems like it's on the verge of making sense, yeah. but it never quite gets there. And is, is that part of the mystery that makes it so alluring? Yeah, I think this song's a great illustration of, like you said, not to be reductive about the meaning of something, that you reduce it by saying, well, this means that. Right. And part of enjoying this song is to learn to accept the ambiguity of it and the indeterminate nature of it. What got me into the song is, um, I guess, several manifestations of that. Um, you know, I always wondered about the uh, the playing blind man's bluff with the keychain. Well, what exactly does that mean? You know, and uh, I, I can talk about that. But um, oh, please go right ahead. Uh, okay, this is actually it. Doesn't really add anything to the meaning of the song, but it's, it was an interesting find. Um, the the received meaning of this is that it has something to do with sex. That you know the the ladies are playing blind man's bluff with the keychain, and I set out to determine why is that so? Where is this coming from? And it turns out there's a book called The Velvet Underground that is published in 1963, um, and the original artwork on the book has a blindfold and a keychain, and the sort of uh, blurb on the back of the book talks about these, you know, swinging sex parties, and it says, oh, well, you know, some of these sex clubs uh, use the blindfold method, and some of them use the keychain method. So this comes out in 1963. You're thinking, how do I put this book into Bob Dylan's hand? And the answer is a guy named Al Aronowitz. Ah, yes. Who who introduces the Beatles to Bob Dylan in 1964? <laughs> Imagine being the guy who yeah, does that. Right. <laughs> and and Al Aronowitz is a sort of uh, village friend of Dylan's. Um, and actually, he, he he claimed in his biography that Bob Dylan had written "Tambourine Man" in his house. Um, but Al Aronowitz is the first manager of the band called The Velvet Underground. And they took that the name of the book as the name of their band in wow. November 1965. November wow. 1965. <laughs> and so, you know, it's not hard to imagine that right as right at the moment Visions of Johanna's being written, Al Aronowitz says, Hey Bob, you know. Get a load of this. I'm managing this band that named themselves after this book. And so there's the ladies playing Blind Man's Bluff with the keychain. And, you know, is that theory true? Who knows? But it seems like a coincidence to me. Um, so there you go. Um I'm, well, I'm, I'm picturing you in, in front of a quirk board with all of these different things, all these different signs and notations with all these strings connecting each other. It's like a giant conspiracy board. It's Velvet Underground, and here's Alan Ronowitz, and they connected up with the Beatles. It's What an amazing web. That, I've never heard that. That's remarkable. Well, and, you know, I, I, I totally reject the sort of A.J. Weberman, yes. you know, kind of like, well— you know, the, the the commander in chief is, you know, this means that and, and this is code for that. I mean, these are all just possibilities. Um, but, you know, he had to get blind man's bluff with the keychain from somewhere. And and this is, you know, um, I, I got an, I got another one in the, the last verse, which you didn't read. Um, or maybe it's the second to the last verse. He talks about the the fiddler and the peddler uh, and the countess, and you know I was and the the fiddler and the peddler changed places by the way when he went to Nashville. In the original, the song is originally performed. the The peddler came first, and then he switched them when he went to Nashville. But um, it occurs to me they are both 
sort of stereotype, Jewish stereotypes, that the, the sort of itinerant peddler um, you will see, um, you know, in older materials, and the, the fiddler is uh, Fiddler on the Roof, which was on Broadway at this time, and that comes from the old Marc Chagall paintings of the, of the fiddler. Now, Bob Dylan's father is a fiddler. That was Abram Zimmerman's instrument. That's what he played, and that's well attested. And Bob Dylan's grandfathers, both of them, are peddlers. Um, and that's well attested. And so, you know, is this autobiography? No, it's not. It's not like encoded autobiography. But on some level, you know, it 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 would have occurred to Bob Dylan that when he's writing about the fiddler and the peddler, that there there is some resonance with his own history there. And, you know, that's kind of where it stops. You know, how interesting. Right. Uh, but I think it adds something to your appreciation of the song to think like, well, gosh, is there a little bit of autobiography going on there? Um and there, you know, then there's the countess, which, you know, who knows who she is, but, uh, but yeah, I don't. Well, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, like, like with a lot of Dylan stuff, there, there's this stuff is the inspiration, but it's not the subject. You know, it's like right. the way you could see anything and say, oh, that inspires me to think of this other thing. And then, then you're off, but it's not actually about that. Yeah. Um, I, well, I do want to get to the rest of the lyrics just so we can sort of oh, sure. uh, get it all wrapped up in here. And it says inside the museums, infinity goes up on trial, which is again, an amazing line. Uh, voices echo this is what salvation must be like after a while i love the way he sings that line too that kind of shruggy delivery he gives it but most of but uh, mona lisa must have had the highway blues you could tell by the way she smiles see the primitive wallflower flee freeze where the, when the jelly-faced women all sneeze hear the one with the mustache say geez i can't find my knees Oh, jewels and binoculars hang from the head of the mule but these visions of johanna they make it all seem so cruel and then he wraps it up with uh, the peddler, now speaks to the countess who's pretending to care for him, saying, name me someone that's not a parasite, and I'll go out and say a prayer for him. But like Louise always says, you can't look at much, can you, man, as she herself prepares for him, which is like impossible to sing. I try and sing along to that line, I never get it right. And Madonna, she still has not showed. We see this empty cage now corrode, where her cape of the stage once had flowed, the fiddler, who now steps to the road, he writes everything that's been returned which was owed on the back of the fish truck that loads while my conscience explodes. The harmonicas play, the skeleton keys in the rain, and these visions of Johanna are now all that remain. Um, a couple things here. First of all, the line, jewels and binoculars hang from the head of the mule. That must have really um, been something significant to the Rolling Stones because, of course, on the cover <laughs> to their live album, Get Your Yaya's Out, there is a mule with binoculars and jewels hanging around its neck. So uh, they must have really liked that that image. But much like uh, the, the bit with the wall and the hall and you've got these sort of short childlike rhymes, you've got that again in the final verse, which is the whole thing about uh, – you know, the stage corrode, showed, flowed, rode, owed, loads, yep. explodes. I mean, it's just this – and it, the way the, the band plays behind him, it's just building and building and building. And, you're again, you're just sort of overwhelmed by this torrent of rhymes. You're not used to hearing that many rhymes all in a row. Yeah, no, it, it does – it is emphatic. Uh, and they're all the, that same long vowel and – it, and it explodes. It terminates with a sort of – explosion which is you know adds a certain kind of a you know sexual metaphor to the whole <laughs> structure of the song um but yeah i um i don't have um i don't know what to say about the the last verse uh, the the jewels and binoculars i have thought about that for a long time and i cannot come up with anything any source or inspiration for jewels and binoculars i uh um I, if, if anyone knows please let me know um <laughs> also you know there's this famous line about the nightingale's code that right the deleted verse from that yeah yeah and it's a great verse and it's mysterious why he dropped that in nashville um and i don't I don't know because it was the original verse was something like 
the Nightingale's Code, it was written on the back of the fish truck. Um, and then it, it became something else written on the back of the fish truck, and the Nightingale's Code was deleted. Um, you know, Nightingale uh, adds another whole layer of allusions to, to Ginsburg and, and T.S. Eliot and, and all sorts you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, I don't know why he took it out. I, I think it, you know, maybe should have been left in. Um, but uh, but it, it wasn't. Um, what else? What, is, what is your what is your feeling about the the other versions, the ones that he did? I mean, because the the, the one he did with the band that he recorded in November is is it works on its own level, but it's startlingly different. I mean, it, it when when this is the version that I was familiar with for for many many years, and then when I realized that you know there was a there was like this quote unquote rock version, it just seemed like how the hell does this song work in that? But it it does kind of work on its own in its own way. It's it's a song that I think I think he got the right idea in Nashville performing it in this more sort of stately uh, slower tempo um, with the band you know they were a rock and roll band and I I, I kind of agree with Bob Dylan that you know their, their musical performance is fine but it's just not an up tempo rocker kind of number. Um, it, it sort of benefits from um, being slowed down and a sparer accompaniment, um, which is why I think they did like 15 takes on November 30th and said, no, this isn't this isn't quite right. Um, that had to but, be very frustrating to record a song of that length and that complexity that many times. You've got to be like, my God, when are we ever going to do this? I mean, I, I like that version, but the thing that I like about the, 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 the quote-unquote you know, actual version, although Dylan would, of course, strenuously say that there is no such final version of any song, but it, it, one of the things I like about the version on Blonde on Blonde is that it sounds very lo- like lonely and quiet. Uh, and right. then, of course, there's a band playing behind them, but the way they're kind of like soft mic'd and it's really Dylan in the forefront, it feels him by himself. But when you hear the band playing and, and rollicking on, you can't help but be conscious of the fact that there's five or six guys in the room with him, you know, right. sawing away. And it just it just to me that 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 tension is not there uh, the way you want it to of, of the feeling of just just this is just a guy in a room by himself musing these, you know, these thoughts. Well, I, I think Dylan had figured out how to play the song in performance between November and February 1966. And as you pointed out, he was performing it as a solo acoustic number. And so by the time he goes into the studio in February, you know, it, it, there's just some sort of light drums and a bass and maybe one other guitar. It's not a whole lot of accompaniment. And I think they did it in like a take or two. It's It was done very quickly in Nashville um, because he had been sort of he had figured out how to do it uh, in performance. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it sort of stops there. Uh, I mean, he sang it throughout the rest of the 1966 tour and then I, I looked uh, last night. I think he only performed it like three times in the next 20 years or so. And yeah, by, I mean, it, and, right. It's a bunch of, <laughs> yeah, it's a bunch of 66 concerts and then not again until 1974. And then he did it a couple of times during the Rolling Thunder Review and then not again until 1988. Uh, he's performed it a total of 215 times. I've actually seen him once do it live at the University of Delaware on April 12th, 2013. I was there and I got to hear him do that version. So, I mean, it's a song that um, he returns to every so often. Um, if there's a, a really great Dylan website called, um, Bob, the address is bobdylan.org.uk, and it's written by a Dylan fan named Tony Atwood. And I really like uh, his writing on Dylan's songs. He kind of does one song at a time. And on, on his article on this song, he posts a couple of live versions. And uh, oh. they're, they're, they're really, really quite good. And it's sort of – it's fun to – there's there's one version that's probably from, I would guess, the mid-'90s because you see um, – uh, oh, I forget the name of the, the guitarist you see, but it's one of the guys from his 90s band. And um, – uh, 
he, he the instrumental lead in is very long and then he gets to that first line and the audience whoops in recognition because they know exactly what it because it doesn't <laughs> you wouldn't know otherwise i mean the tune is completely different but then he finally you know after about three and a half minutes gets to the microphone and he starts with the ain't it just like the night and people are like Woo! <laughs> they finally recognize what he's doing so and it's it's a really beautiful version so it's a, it's clearly a song that you know, I mean, it's a, it's a genius song, and it's it's something that's probably, um, you know, eats up a lot of his brain, you know, in terms of getting all the words right. It's a long song. I mean, all the live versions are seven, eight minutes long, but uh, it's it's something that he it, he doesn't play a lot, but but he can whip it out every so often. And it's uh, like I said, it's a fun thing to listen to because it's just it's 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 very interesting to hear him attempt more country fight versions and different versions. It's, yes, it's a, it's a very malleable tune. Yeah, although the the words are fixed. I mean, to my knowledge, he's never yes. gone back like he has with Tangled Up in Blue and right, sort of reworked right. it. So, yeah, no, I, I don't think I've ever seen this performed myself, uh, and I would like to. Let me just say one more thing. The, the country music station, I figured out it was WJRZ, 970 <laughs> AM, uh, which first started broadcasting country music in New York City. On September fifteenth, nineteen sixty-five. Um, so that that must have been it. So interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Have you ever heard any um, cover versions that you enjoy? Uh, I. Gosh, uh, I think you've stumped me, Rob. There's, um, there is one. Uh, <laughs> that, I mean, it's an ambitious song to try and take on, but there is one that I heard. Again, Tony Atwood links to it in his website from uh, the old Crow Medicine Show. Uh-huh. Uh, from an album, 50 Years of Blonde on Blonde, and they do a version, which is a much more rollicking kind of, I don't want to say party version, because it's not, uh, it's not a, it doesn't sound like a, you know, a B-52 song or anything, but yeah. it, it's, it's got much more lively and upbeat, and it's fun to listen to. I wouldn't, you know, I mean, there's no version that's going to match this one on Blonde on Blonde, but it's, it's a, it's, it's fun to listen to. It's an admirable take on a very complex song. Yeah, it's sort of a wordy, it's kind of the opposite of a party song, I think. I mean, you yes. can perform it well, but it's kind of a uh, more of an intellectual exercise kind of song. But yeah, no, I'll check that out. Yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. And so, yeah, this is, this is uh, I, I mentioned this in the previous episode, which was about um, It's All Right, Ma, um, I'm Only Bleeding, is that, you know, the average person um, who is aware of Bob Dylan and knows some of the songs that, you know, who's not a Dylan fan, but they're aware of Dylan as a presence, they can name, you know, Like a Rolling Stone and Times Are Changing and Blown in the Wind, maybe Tangled Up in Blue. You know, there's that handful of songs that were quote-unquote hits, and the average person knows that you know what these songs are, and they were written and performed by Bob Dylan. Then uh, you've got this whole sub level of songs that are ne- were never hits, were never released as singles, but are the thing that catapults Dylan from just being a guy that had a couple of great songs to this level of an ongoing creative genius. And this is one of these songs. This is a song that I'd say only Dylan fans really know, but it's it's just one of the great epics. Of, of his you know of his career it's just one of those things you're just like wow and and you know on an on an album full of amazing complex songs like blonde on blonde this one even stands out among that it is just you know one of the complete masterpieces and you know uh, it's it's there are multiple versions available on different bootleg series editions and he said the the acoustic versions he did live are actually very good i really like them um they they bring a different dimension to it uh, than than the one you hear on the blonde of blonde, but I mean it's again it, for 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 how long and dense and internal this is, uh, it's amazingly malleable. And I said it's just it's I never tire of it. It's just it <laughs> takes you on this amazing journey, uh, and uh, you know you you come out the other side and you're sort of like I don't know what all that was about. Infinity went up on trial and there was a jelly faced woman and <laughs> you know there was a fish truck and somebody's conscience yeah. exploded. But yet I kind of want to hear it again. It's just it's the magic of this song. I think that's well said. Yeah, I agree with all that. All right. So uh, I think that's going to do it for Visions of Johanna. Uh, Cameron, is the, is the stuff that you've written uh, about the song available online somewhere that people can read? 
Not yet. I okay. have had a a manuscript about this song sort of uh, at the the slow part of my inbox for about eighteen months now. <laughs> and I, I'm one reason I wanted to do the show is to kind of kick myself into putting it over the goal line. So I okay. hope to get that out. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we could help that along. That would be great. Well, and when when you finally get it released and people can read it. Uh, let me know, and I will absolutely plug it on the show because I'm okay. sure uh, you, you've sent me some of it, and I found it really fascinating because you had aspects that I have never been able to consider or be able to appreciate, and I'm always happy to to get a new insight into to, to Dylan's material. So, yeah, when it's out, let, it, let us know, and I will plug it on the show because I think people should read it. Oh, thank you, Rob. All right, well, thank you, Cameron. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. You too. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, back episodes of the show are on the network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're always talking uh, Bob Dylan over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until the next episode, we will see you later. Bye. Ain't it just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet? We sit here stranded, but we're all doing our best to deny it. And Louise holds a handful of rain, tempting you to defy it. Lights flicker from the opposite loft In this room the heat pipes just cough The country music station plays soft But there's nothing, really nothing to turn off Just Louise and her lover so entwined Of Johanna that conquer my mind. In the empty lot where the ladies play, blind man's bluff with the keychain. All night girls They whisper of escapades Out on the D-train We can hear the night watchman Click his flashlight Ask himself if it's him or them That's insane Louise, she's alright She's just near She's delicate And seems like the mirror but she just makes it all too concise and too clear That Johanna's not here The ghost of electricity Howls in the bones of her face Where these visions of Johanna Have not taken my place